All right, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. And the message is entitled, The Armor of God, Part 1. Um, having looked at the exhortation about the proper response of the believer for victory in the warfare that was characterized um, by three things in verse 13, the proper spiritual preparation to take up the whole armor of God, the purpose for the spiritual opposition that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and the proper spiritual exertion and having done all to stand. Paul now comes, notice, to the particular parts of the divine armor provided for the believer to fight and be victorious in spiritual warfare. It goes from verse 14 all the way down to 18. There are seven pieces to the armor listed. The first five are defensive. The sixth is offensive in the the sword of the spirit. And there's a seventh which is not identified by the metaphor and stands by itself as an offensive weapon, prayer in the spirit. And you find that in verse 18. To an extent, we might say that Paul has given the doctrinal aspect of the spiritual warfare from verse 10 to 13. And now, from verse 14 to 18, he gives the practical, the hands-on. It's nice to know information. It's nice to know biblical truth. But what are we going to do with it? If we don't apply it, if we don't put it to our life, then it's worthless. So there has to be the understanding and learning and studying and then the application for the transformation and for just living out this life. Many have proposed that the order of this armor is the same as when a soldier would put on his armor. And again, uh, Paul has the Roman soldier in mind. So let's take a look at the first three parts of the armor, which consist of the girdle of truth, verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14, and the shoes of the gospel of peace. Let me read. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The girdle of truth comes first. Notice the Apostle Paul is acting as a commanding general for the Christian soldier. Stand, therefore. Paul proclaimed the order, stand. The word stand, as you know, means to make firm, to be fixed, to be established. This is an imperative command to be obeyed by every believer. No exception. This is the heiress active, as we pointed out last time, a definite act. Literally, take up your stand. A constant, literally, stand once and for all. Now, the word has the idea of upholding and sustaining under the force of opposition. You might think of a football line holding back those who are pushing against them. The word stand against the wiles of the devil was given to us in verse 11. We've noted already the word 
other times. The same form. Then once in a different time. In verse 13, to withstand. A different form of the same word. To set oneself against. And then again in 13, having done all to stand, to make firm, fix, or to establish. And the word again, six times, against, 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 in verse 12. Spiritual host of wickedness. While we're looking at all this, it's easy to lose sight, okay? We're going in a very detailed thing, but you've got to remember all this fits into verse 12. You're fighting against spiritual wickedness. Not human beings, not flesh and blood. We're talking about war in the spirit. Satan and his angels and his demons. That's always a backdrop of all this armor. The described posture of the believer is one of battle. One of readiness. One of defense. If you're in the world. And you're out there in the streets. And something starts happening. You can always know. People who are in the world, they, they're, they're, they're just by their demeanor, their body stance. <laughs> Something's going to happen. They're ready. People who are naive, they're just, you know, they don't know what's going on. The proclaimed order is in view of what he had stated. Therefore, in view of that we have an anonymous enemy again, verse 12. Not flesh and blood. Principality, powers, rulers of darkness, of this age. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies, the lower atmosphere in this world. In view of being victorious over the enemy in verse 13, taking on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand that evil day, that evil day, that day when he comes against you, that day when you've done something stupid, that day when somebody's setting you up, that evil day, that day when your marriage is going just horribly wrong, that day when your children have just turned their back on God, that day when you just received the news that you've got cancer, that day. And having done all to end up standing. Notice the Apostle Paul acknowledged the practice, obedience of the Christian soldier. Having girded your waist with truth, Paul indicated this was the very reason for the command to stand. The girding of oneself preceded the action by the heiress to stand, states Lenski, the Greek scholar. The phrase, having girded your waist here, is what they call a participle heiress, an indirect middle voice. A definite action done by the believer himself, the Christian soldier, is to belt himself. No one's going to do it for you. Not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your friends, not other believers. You, I, must do that. Notice, Paul indicated the belt around our waist was for battle. Literally, loins is the word. The old King James has loins. This is not the girdle or the girding up of the long flowing robes that we have in other passages 
where you would gird them up and tuck them onto your belt so you can run and not be tripped up and not be encumbered. A soldier would never go out to battle with such a garment. If he was wearing it because it's cold, but once the battle began, he would not go out to battle with it. He would remove it. The belt would provide the support to attach the scabbard of the sword and his thorax, the breastplate. That belt would come around. The sword would fit in here. The breastplate, as we're going to see, comes up the neck around the shoulders and down in here and attaches. The imagery is in view of the kingdom age Messiah from Isaiah 11.5. Listen. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. God is portrayed as a warrior, we'll see, as we quote more of Isaiah in this armor. He is the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. He's never lost a battle. The belt would strengthen his body and hold things together so nothing would impede or obstruct his movement to be able to fight. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind, bring your thoughts into captivity. Your thoughts trip us up, tempt us, stumble us. Think on those things that are good, lovely, of good report. Bring your thoughts in captivity that come against the knowledge of God and your obedience to keep you from that. That's what the scriptures tell us. Paul indicated, notice the believer was to gird himself with a particular quality of belt. One word, truth. The word truth is aletheia. It's used to depict what is true in any matter under consideration in the context. What is true in things pertaining to God and the duties of man, moral and religious truth in this matter. The truth as taught in the Christian religion respecting God and the execution of his purpose through Christ. All that is in the word of God. All is absolute truth. All I am responsible for. The word appears 110 times in the New Testament. It's a key word for the Christian faith and objective truth. Therefore, in this context, it speaks of the confidence and dependent state of the heart and life of the Christian soldier on the truth and reliability of the word of God knowingly and agreeing that it is the revelation of God for all of life. One of the failures of the emergent church today, they say the word of God is not relevant for today. So they don't teach the Word of God. They add to the Word of God. They use their creative minds. They, they, they just they distort the Word of God. They don't use biblical terms. A new vocabulary, redefining Christianity, the Christian, and the church. In fact, they don't call their gathering the church. They call it first campus, second campus. What? My Bible says church. Those called out of the dark world to the light in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're not a campus. You go to university, 
Now you go on a campus. You gather together in the Jesus Christ name. You're the church. You're not the campus. But they're so chic and up to date, aren't they? Well, they may be hot stuff in hell, but not in heaven. The etymological root means non-concealment, truthfulness, reliability, without any disguises or falsehood, being inerrant and infallible. Therefore, everything in the Bible is a trustworthy record of truth. Do you realize what a benefit that is if you really believe that? Your life is very stable. All your decisions have already been made. You just have to agree with God. That's it. The outcome is confidence, courage, and preparedness to fight the spiritual forces attempting to undermine, contradict, and add to God's word. This is the attacks of the enemy. He uses men. Also, stability and strength to resist, fight, and to be victorious. This particular word, Alethea, appears six times in this letter. Contrary to this would be a soldier who was a traitor or a coward, concealing his true character. He would be a spy, a Benedict Arnold. You know, the believer is to stand as a Christian soldier, having girded his or her waist or loins with the truth of God's word, resulting in integrity and character. That's the most important thing. Because we are born into warfare and no one is exempt, as I've told you often. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. When my son was over in Iraq fighting, he was not concerned whether the water bill had been paid. He had one thing on his mind. To kill the enemy. That's it. And protect his fellow soldiers, his fellow Marines. That's it. Don't get entangled with nothing that you're not concerned about. You're in warfare. But also because Satan and his host of wicked spirits will attack us throughout our lives to discourage, divide, to distract, attempt, all to defeat us. So Peter says, be Sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. First Peter five eight. He never sleeps. But also because people will question the truthfulness of the word of God, its content, more so today than ever before. This generation, there's a, a generation of entitlement and indoctrination. Questions the word of God more than any other generation of American history. 
in particular when we crossed over into the year 2000. We've moved into an amoral society, relative culture. Listen to what 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or an apology, meaning to give an answer. That's what a defense here. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You give them the word of God. When somebody asks me a truth about the Bible, whether I believe that God created the world in six days and then the seventh he rested, I don't care who they are. I don't care how many people they are. I don't care if they're all non-believers. I give them the truth. If they don't like it, that's tough. It doesn't embarrass me. I have the truth. The believer as a Christian soldier stands having girded his waist with truth, trusting the sufficiency of the word of God to live God's divine standard for single life, married life, the various relationships of husband, wife, father, mother, friends. It's sufficient. The word um, truth, as we've noted, was aletheia um, six times in the epistle. And as I looked at it, the five other ones really describe the very application of the sufficiency. Listen first to chapter 1, verse 13. Um, truth and reliability for salvation. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of Aletheia, truth, the gospel of your salvation. So this word is reliable and trustworthy to save you from hell. Second, 421. True and reliable for growth, development, and maturity in Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, Aletheia. He cannot lie. Wow. In 424, true and reliable for our sanctification and godly life. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow. Fourth, 425, true and reliable for Controlling the poisonous tongue, that beast behind the ivory cage, the serpent. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth, Elithia, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Fifth, you have the fact that true and reliable to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and aletheia. Truth. Wow. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are also called by the same word. Truth. Aletheia. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth. Aletheia. He is when the comforter, the spirit of Alicia, truth comes. John 14, 17, 15, 26. The word is Alicia. 
Jesus is Alicia, the Holy Spirit is Alicia. Reliability, trustworthiness, inerrant, infallible. Wow. First Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's telling this to Timothy, Paul. So the believer is to stand having girded his waist with truth. Is that you? Are you girded with truth? You know what the Bible says. You're stable. You know what you're talking about. To be able to oppose the enemy when he comes. Has God said? Yep, he has. Notice secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. The Apostle Paul continues here to act as the commanding general and the Christian soldier. And um, having proclaimed the uh, order of to stand, again, it applies to the second part of the armor, um, to make firm. And the reason, again, is to uphold and sustain under opposition. And Paul, again, describing the posture of the believer, uh, is ready to, to defend. This is warfare. Uh, to fight the spiritual battle against the hostile, wicked enemy, Satan and his angels. Um, not flesh and blood. Um, the purpose, again, is to be victorious over the enemy, verse 13. Uh, that way, that's why we take the whole armor of God, not selected parts, the whole armor of God, uh, to be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to end up standing. Now, notice the Apostle Paul acknowledged the practiced obedience of the Christian soldier again, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul again indicated this was the very reason for the command to stand. The putting on of the breastplate for oneness or for oneself again is preceded. The action by the errors to stand is what Lenski here states. So in other words, you stand ready to fight because you've girded yourself with this part. You start with the first, you move to the second. By the time you end up standing and you're ready to fight. The putting on of the breastplate for oneself again precedes this action. And notice the phrase, having put on the breastplate, is once again a participle heiress, indirect middle voice. All three of them are the same. All apply the same thing. A definite action done by the believer himself, the Christian soldier, is to breastplate himself. Paul has the Roman breastplate in mind. The Roman soldier's breastplate was very, very important. No Roman soldier would ever dare or think to go out into battle without his breastplate. It'd be suicide. The breastplate covered the front and the back partially, sometimes just straps. The interesting thing is that here in the armor, Paul says we have no breastplate in the, in the back, only the front. So that means we're not to run. You, get, you run, you have no protection. Husband and wife, you get back to back, you have full armor. You both fight the enemy, you don't fight each other. Full armor. The purpose of the breastplate 
of the armor is most obvious to protect the heart, lungs, the stomach, the intestines, and any other vital organ, your liver, your bladder. Mortal wounds. The breastplate was often made of leather or heavy linen unto which were sewn overlapping pieces of metal molded or hammered to conform to the body or chain, mail. Paul indicated, notice, the believer was to breastplate himself with a particular quality of breastplate, of righteousness. He's making a parallel to the literal Roman soldier, to the Christian soldier. The imagery is taken from Isaiah again. God is the undisputed victorious warrior with his provision for salvation for Israel in Isaiah 59:17. That's the context in Isaiah. But he takes it from there. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, Isaiah 59:17 says. God is called throughout the book of Isaiah the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. God declared to be, is declared to be the Lord, is a man of war in Exodus 15.3. As he delivered the children of Israel by dividing the Red Sea, as he defeated the army of the Egyptians by drowning them. Jesus at the second coming conquers over the nations. Revelation 19.15-16 tells us, He's a man of war. From his mouth goes out a sharp two-edged sword, striking the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. He is called King of King and Lord of Lords. There in Revelation 19, 15, and 16. Notice Paul knew that there are two kinds of righteousness ascribed to the believer. There is the imputed righteousness first, given to every believer as he or she is justified in Jesus Christ. Imputed. That means that God made Jesus sin for me who knew no sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He imputed the holiness and righteousness of Jesus to me when I repented. And Jesus took all my sin away. Imputed. I did nothing for that. I just believed him for that. Okay? Romans 1, 16 through 17. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. According to Habakkuk 2, 4. This is justification by faith that results in peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 tells us. Titus tells us that we're not accepted by God by any works of righteousness that we've done. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5. It's a gift of God. Not a work, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus now who walk after the Spirit, not the flesh. Romans 8, 1. You see, we're new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. 
some commentators teach that the righteousness in our text here is imputed righteousness. But I think they're wrong. Certainly, that comes first for us to become Christians, to be justified. But these guys are Christian soldiers. They're already saved. The second righteousness is imparted. The first is imputed for your salvation, justification. The second one is imparted righteousness. Which involves the ongoing ability to live a life of sanctification by the believer from day to day. To not be hindered by Satan to be or out of fellowship with God. I believe this is the righteousness indicated by the breastplate of righteousness. Notice that the believer puts it on. Therefore, it cannot be imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness. Paul's own testimony. Listen to it. Um, 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 4 through 7 says, But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in strifes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by hold of the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. In other words, God was constantly imparting to Paul the sufficiency for all these things. That's imparted righteousness, depending on God. Barclay writes and says, When a man is clothed in righteousness, he is impregnable. From who? The enemy and others. You can't be accused. You're not the person you used to be, right? You're not living the same way. Paul exhorts the believer in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope of salvation. We'll get to the helmet as we move along. So these metaphors are used throughout Scripture. Peter again says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, as His divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Ongoing sanctification, growing, developing, maturing, depending, praying, listening, trusting, committing, abiding a sanctified life. Gathering together. You know, it's much like a doctor who puts on a garment and a mask enter a contaminated room so he does, doesn't get contaminated. He sets, he sets himself apart from the germs. Well, you are now living a sanctified life. The breast of righteousness. You're living differently. Though you live in this world, you don't live of the world. Though you're aware of all the corruption, you're not there any longer. You're living differently. 
Every believer to be victorious as a soldier must live a sanctified life as one responsible and able to put on the breastplate of righteousness, having access to God to defeat the enemy. If I'm living in sin, then how can I have access to God and how can I defeat the enemy? When Satan comes to me and says, you don't deserve heaven, I say, you're right. I'm saved by grace through faith. But he can't accuse me of living like I used to. No condemnation goes from Christ Jesus, right? Remember Ephesians 4.1, Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called Ephesians 4, 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility, the vanity, the emptiness of your mind. Ephesians 4, 17. I mean, stop and think some of the stupid things we used to do. What we call fun. <laughs> the waste of money, the waste of energy, the waste of, for a lot of us, our good years of our youth. Wasted. Ephesians 4, 29 through 30 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification setting apart. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We understand God created our bodies. Male and female. Distinct and different with a purpose in mind. Sexual union and marriage. To have children. And to give God glory. And to communicate the gospel. Not to corrupt ourselves and to do whatever we want. Now putting on the breastplate of righteousness will give the believer great confidence and assurance of their salvation. Peter says by spiritual growth and examining our lives to the scriptures. Listen to him. Um, Peter here in Second Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 5 through 11. He says... Um, but also, for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness agape love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even the blindness. Listen, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's a Christian he's talking about. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It's talking to people like you and I, 2,000 years ago. Paul says, by pressing forward, not looking backwards or going backwards. This in the Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold for that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Don't miss this one thing. Ready? One thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. One thing is needful, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward the things that are ahead. If you leave here and you get in your car and you try to drive going home, looking backwards, you will not get out of the parking lot. You will crash. That's the picture of too many Christians living their life in Christ, looking backwards. And they crash and crash and crash. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness will help or keep us usable and fruitful in the warfare. Listen to uh, Paul in Philippians 3, 7 through 10. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted lost for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, pala manure, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through, Jesus, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Thinking better of others, putting others before you, serving others, denying self, picking up the cross. That's what he's talking about. Jesus said this to his disciples. Listen carefully. John 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So he's gone from the illustration of fruit bearing to the individual people, application. He says, now, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. He goes from the illustration to the application. Who's he talking to? His disciples. If there was no possibility of not abiding... Why would Jesus even bring it up? Simple question. You know what's interesting? 
When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Have you read the gospel? Every one of them said to Jesus, is it I? Every one of the apostles knew they had the potential and capacity to betray Jesus. It's a sobering thought. Keep that in mind. Never say never. The believer is to study and to know doctrine. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. That's why we gather. So we study God's word. We've been good soldiers. Acts 17.11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness of mind. And searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So, you come to church with a Bible. Do you know how many people go to churches and they never carry Bibles? You, you walk by, just walk, drive by on a, on a Sunday, a seeker-friendly church, an emergent church. People don't carry Bibles. Oh, but they, they use their, go in the sanctuary, it's all dark. There's an entertainment. There's a performance going on by the pastor on the stage. <laughs> They're not teaching. Wow. The believer is to stand having put on the breastplates of righteousness. Notice thirdly, the shoes of the gospel of peace, verse 15. The Apostle Paul, for the third time, acts as the commanding general to the Christian soldier here. Paul, having proclaimed the order against the stand, applies again the third time. Um, being firm, fixed, established. A breeze, the reasons to uphold and that opposition that's going to come against your life, even in particular the evil day. And the posture again is that of being ready to defend to fight the spiritual battle against Satan and his angels and demons. The purpose is to be victorious, verse 13. So we take every piece of armor and put it on, the whole armor, to be able to stand and withstand in the evil day. And having done so, you end up standing firm, unmovable. Notice the Apostle Paul acknowledged the practice obedient again now of the Christian soldier in this third piece. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul again indicated this was the very reason for the command to stand. So what applied to the first applies to all. The shodding of our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace is done by and for oneself again, preceded by the heiress action to stand. The phrase, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, is for the third time again a participle heiress, indirect middle. A definite action done by the believer himself, and the Christian soldier is to shod himself with the gospel of peace. Every one of these is identical. Paul 
has the Roman military shoes in mind here as he's looking at the soldier who's guarding him. The military shoe was bound by a thong over the instep and around the ankle to support the ankle to not twist it or to spring your ankle. It held it tight. Like wearing loose shoes and you try to run. You'll spring your ankle or you'll break it if you go over because there's no support. So they were supported. The word shod there means to underbind. The same word is used of Peter when the angel came to rescue him from prison and he told him to tie the, his sandals when he was in jail in Acts 12, 8. The military shoe was studded with nails or spikes to permit sure-footedness and to have good traction for forward movement and when sliding backwards. If you've ever gone hiking or that, if you have shoes that don't have a good sole uh, with, with lines or something and you get some loose dirt, you'll start sliding backwards. But if you have some good hiking shoes, they grip, they have like little bumps on it, and then you can get traction. This is what it's like. This was both true of Alexander the Great and the Romans. They're incredible warriors, incredible armies. Giving stability, helping balance in difficult terrain. So this is the illustration of the soldier. Paul indicated the believer was to shot his own feet with a particular preparation of the gospel of peace. The imagery comes again from Isaiah, directed to Zion for salvation, the Jew. Listen what he says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tithings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul pulls this. Nahum, you remember we just finished them a while back, quotes this in the judgment of Nineveh in Nahum 1.15. So God, by his spirit, used the same scripture in one way, and then he used it another way for another one, each time being anointed and inspired for the context, for the application. You and I couldn't do that, but the prophets and the apostles could, speaking under inspiration. Paul quotes this verse to the Romans in fulfillment of the gospel message in the age of grace in Romans 10, 14, and 15. How beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel. How will they hear of a preacher's not sent? The word preparation simply indicates the condition of a person or thing being ready. The word in this form appears only this time in the New Testament. In classical Greek, it is used in the sense of establishment or firm foundation. It's used for the tackle of a ship all fitted out, lacking nothing. 
this readiness makes us fully ready to plunge into the fight, Lenski, the Greek scholar, says. There is no article for the gospel indicating a readiness inspired by the gospel. If the gospel is not in me doing that, then I'm being presumptuous. Not being a Christian. But being a Christian, it's a gospel that inspires me to do this and to believe him to equip me for this. The gospel means good and glad tidings. We get our word evangelism from it. The wealth of the good news of the gospel is that it results in bringing peace between man and God through repentance from sin and being saved. Look what he did for you. Look what he did for me. It's been 42 years. Where's the time gone? Amazing. Notice the word peace. Irene. We get the name Irene from it. It means that which has been bound together. Which implies it was previously separated or fractured. Sin is in the middle. God is holding on the other side. And man is sinful on the other side. Separated from God. The gospel of good news says Christ died for you. And if you believe that he died for you and paid the price of your sins, that you can call upon his name, ask forgiveness through repentance, and he will forgive you of your sin, and you will be reconciled, justified, and that peace with God will be making you one with God. The obstacles removed by the grace of God. like an athlete running on a marathon he knows that he must put the best shoes on to run effectively in order to win you got to have the right kicks it helps the believer as a christian soldier who has a firm footing established in the gospel will persevere through the most difficult trials and testings and make progress. Christianity is not just biting the bullet and bearing it. Paul says, I have finished my course with joy. Paul didn't say, thank God, I'm out of here. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, Paul says, But we have this treasure in the certain vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. We are hard-pressed on every side. Yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Wow. Paul warns. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Anywhere. In other words, stand on his own might, not depending on the Lord. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. Wow. What a great verse. But it can be a verse you hate if you fail because you know it's all your fault, not God's. The help's there. Whether we avail ourselves of it or not, time will tell. The believer who is shot with the gospel will be able to impart to others the good news. Satan is always attempting to hinder sinners from coming to Christ. You know that. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 8. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan is there to hinder you before you came to Christ. Satan was there hindering me. And he's hindering many other people. Those that you witness to. Those who see your life. Those who you're praying for. Paul again says, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 4, 24-26. I'm sorry, Timothy. 2 Timothy. So, that was you. That was I. He had us ensnared. The parable of the sower is classic. Jesus said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, the poneros, same as in our text before, Satan comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. You know what the word snatches there is? The same word for the rapture. The very same word. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Robs it from their heart. Two of the three seeds fell away due to the tribulation, persecutions. Others for the cares of this world, deceitful riches, choking out the word of God. Matthew 13, 20 through 23. Only one was not born again. The one by the wayside where Satan snatched up. The others were. But out of the three, only one remained. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen that attrition of those people that come to Christ. Because they don't get grounded, they don't grow, they don't mature, they get deceived. Jude gives us a caution. Listen very carefully as we take this gospel to people. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You be careful as you get pulled back in. Certain people, you got to be careful. The believer is to stand having shot his or her feet with the preparation of the gospel 
of peace. Wow. These are the first three parts of the armor. In the spiritual warfare that we are to put on. The girdle of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of the gospel of peace. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We thank you for tonight. We pray you would deal with our hearts. Lord, we pray you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to just long after you, Lord, that we would be obedient to you and we'd be dependent upon you. So, Lord, as people are praying and, Lord, as people are listening out there on the radio, we pray for those that you're ministering to be saved, Lord, convicting them of their sin, allowing them to know your love and grace for them, Lord. So as you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight, God has brought you here to be saved or allowed you to hear the broadcast. Right where you sit, right where you stand, wherever you are right now in the world, you can call upon the name of the Lord right now and He will save you and forgive you of all your sins. This is your prayer of repentance. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon Him and be saved. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord. For all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.